together in God's Word to the book of Genesis once more, Genesis 49. Jacob and his sons are in Egypt, and Jacob is on his deathbed. He pronounces blessings upon his sons. This is the word of God. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which must befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob. And hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine honor, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah. Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea and he shall be for an haven of ships and his border shall be unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong ass couching between two burdens and he saw that rest was good and the land that it was pleasant and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose, he giveth goodly words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shot at him, and hated him, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father who shall help thee, And by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. 
They shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is it that their fathers spake unto them, and blessed them. Every one according to his blessing, he blessed them. And he charged them, and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a possession of a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The purchase of the field of the cave that is therein was from the children of Heth. And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text of the sermon tonight is verses 8 through 12. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Seventeen years have passed since the family of Jacob moved from Canaan into the land of Goshen. And Jacob is not getting any younger. He's 147 years old. And he's dying. When Joseph hears of his father's illness, he quickly goes to his bedside with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph may be a great man, a ruler of Egypt, the second in power under Pharaoh. But he has not forgotten who he is, and he remains a man of God at heart. And he wants his father to affirm that he recognizes his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as sons of Israel, not sons of Egypt where they were born to the daughter of Asenath, priestess of An, but sons of Israel. And Jacob blesses them, Ephraim and Manasseh, thereby reaffirming the place of Joseph in the nation and granting to him the double portion of his inheritance. That was chapter 48. But there's more for Jacob to say before he closes his eyes to this life and is gathered to his people. The last words that a father says before he dies are sometimes the most important words that he ever says in his life. So everyone was gathered around Jacob's bed, and you can imagine Jacob lying there, old and frail, looking up through blurred eyes at the faces of his twelve sons, laboring for breath, 
to speak his final words. And then he prophesies and blesses each of them in turn. And though some of what he says hit hard, particularly what he says about Reuben and Simeon and Levi, yet it's correct to say that this is Jacob's blessing of his sons, whom he recognizes all of them as patriarchs of the covenant nation. And it's especially in the blessing that Jacob pronounces on one of his sons in particular that all of them will be blessed. And that's the blessing that he gives to Judah, to whom he entrusts the scepter. And that's what I call our attention to this evening. Judah entrusted with the scepter. First, we will see that Judah was entrusted entrusted with a scepter so that he might rule over his brothers. Secondly, so that he might overcome his enemies. And finally, so that he might give peace to his people. Judah entrusted with a scepter, first to rule over his brothers, second to overcome his enemies, finally to give peace to his people. Jacob says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The scepter is a rod in the hand of the king. In the ancient world in which Judah lived, a scepter usually looked like a shepherd's staff, deliberately shaped to have that crook in it. And this was done on purpose in order to make a statement, just as a shepherd guides and leads and protects and defends his sheep with his staff. So the king will guide and lead and protect and defend his people from enemies with a scepter in his hand. Jacob is speaking in poetry, and so he uses parallelism. And there's parallelism in verse 10. The lawgiver, he mentions, is a parallel to the scepter, referring to the same object. So think of the king sitting on his throne, and he has his scepter. Maybe his scepter is on his lap between his knees, or maybe his scepter is propped up between his knees and between his feet. The scepter would be inscribed with markings to indicate the royal office and the royal calling of the one who holds it in his hand. When the man holding this rod, this staff, speaks, you better listen up because the word that comes out of his mouth is the law. And that's why the scepter is called the lawgiver. Of course, the scepter itself is only an object but it's a symbol for the office and the dignity and the rule and the responsibility of the king. Now, looking at the 12 sons of Jacob, there are several candidates to whom the scepter might be given. The right of rule in the covenant nation. The obvious candidate would seem to be Reuben. And Jacob's eyes fall upon Reuben first as he begins to prophesy over the things that will befall his sons in the last days. Verse 3. Reuben, 
Thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. And you would think that the next words out of Jacob's mouth after saying something like that would be, The scepter will be given unto Reuben, and the lawgiver will not depart from his feet. But no, that's not what Jacob says. Reuben is unstable as water. He's like a frothing pot full of boiling passions. He went up to Jacob's couch, up to Jacob's bed, and slept with Jacob's concubine. And that sin of Reuben was not only sexual in nature, but this was a purposeful and pagan attempt to exalt himself over his father and to claim leadership over the tribe by taking his father's concubine. But as the Lord Jesus would later say, those who exalt themselves shall be abased. And so Jacob says over Reuben, his firstborn, he shall not excel. Now this was not a curse on Reuben per se, but it was a warning and especially a warning to his children and to the tribe that would descend from Reuben. And it's a warning that some of Reuben's descendants would go on to fail to listen to. There's not a lot of prominent names of individuals who come out of the tribe of Reuben in Old Testament history, but there are a couple. Their names are Dathan and Abiram. Followers of Korah who attempted to exalt themselves over God by taking the rule from Moses and Aaron, whom God had appointed as the leaders in the days of the Exodus. And Dathan and Abiram, along with Korah and all the other rebels, were abased. They did not excel, but were cast down into the pit. And as for the tribe of Reuben, in general, it also did not excel, but was always on the periphery of Israel's history, both In terms of the events that unfolded, and even geographically, Reuben was on the other side of the Jordan River and was forgotten in most of the events of Israel. So Jacob passes over Judah and does not give, or passes over Reuben and does not bestow the scepter on him. The other candidate that might seem obvious for the scepter is Joseph. Joseph is the first son who was born to Jacob's chosen wife, Rachel. Joseph was clearly marked out by Jacob early on as his heir. That's what that coat of many colors was all about. My sons, I want you to know this one, Joseph, the son of Rachel, is my heir. As far as Jacob was concerned, Joseph had died, but now he was brought back from the dead by an act of God. And you'll notice in the reading of Genesis 49 that though Jacob swiftly passes over most of his sons in the dishing out of these blessings, there's just a line about Zebulun, a little bit more about Dan and Gad. Naphtali is mentioned. They're all blessed but not dwelt upon. But Joseph, he spends quite a, to- quite a bit of time talking about Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, uh, a fruitful bough who is blessed with the blessings of heaven. 
And in a way, Joseph is given the honor of the firstborn son of Jacob. You might remember that in the Old Testament, there are always two blessings that were given to the firstborn son. There was, first of all, the right of headship, the right of rule represented by the scepter. But there was also the gift of the double portion of the father's inheritance. And Joseph was given the latter of those blessings by way of his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. So that First Chronicles 5 verse 1 says that the birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph. The birthright, the double portion. There are two tribes in Israel representing the claims of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they're both very large tribes. Joseph was blessed. Blessed with the double portion. But he was not given the scepter. And this is one of those interesting turns in biblical history. And it's an unexpected development that would become a point of contention later on in Israel's history. It's a point of contention that explains why the tribes of Judah and Ephraim would always end up being in a rivalry in the history that goes forward. And this is a point of contention that will explain ultimately why the ten tribes under the leadership of Ephraim will end up breaking away from the influence of Judah and the house of David. Ephraim, the son of Joseph, claims the right of rule should be his as a part of the birthright blessing. And that seems to make sense according to our human way of understanding these matters. But it's not what Jacob said. He did not say the scepter will not depart from Joseph. He did not say the scepter will not depart from Ephraim. He entrusted it to Judah instead. Judah will be given the right to rule over his brothers. Judah will rule over Reuben and Simeon and Levi, his older brothers. Judah will rule over Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise, Jacob says in verse 8. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. In some ways, this is the shock of the century. The scepter will not depart from Judah? From Judah? Are you sure you know what you're saying, Jacob? Are you sure you're not delirious on your deathbed? Don't you remember who Judah is? Wasn't it this schemer who sold your favored son Joseph into slavery? Wasn't it Judah who caused so much trouble in your family? And yet you're going to make him the ruler? Over your brothers? It's from him that you want the kings to descend? From Judah? And yet when you know the story, as we do now, maybe it's not such a shock after all. Jacob recognizes here in the spirit what the kingdom and the covenant of God is all about. And the kingdom and covenant of God is not about glory outwardly. And the kingdom and covenant of God is not about power and dominion over the nations as such. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a 
kingdom of redemption. It's a kingdom whose king is meek and lowly, riding upon a donkey on his way to the cross. And there's no son of Jacob who understands this better. And there's no son of Jacob who better exudes this mindset after his repentance than Judah. Jacob recognizes the spirit of royalty, of divine royalty in Judah. Jacob recognizes in Judah the spirit of Jesus Christ himself. And it is that spirit of Jesus Christ that moves Jacob to bless Judah and to entrust to him the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, as we all know, Judah himself was never personally a king. There was never a crown on his head. There was never a scepter of royalty in his hand, personally. He had the gift of leadership that we saw, a gift that was renewed after the image of Christ when he was converted. Judah is the brother who was ready to lay down his life, having taken responsibility for Benjamin so that his family could be reconciled after all of those years of pain and turmoil. Judah is the brother whom Jacob sent to lead the way into the land of Goshen. But Jacob isn't really speaking of Judah personally. He is speaking of Judah personally, but more he's speaking prophetically of the tribe that will come out of Judah's loins. Judah will be the tribe of the kings. It's interesting to note, though, if you know the history of Israel and how this develops over time, it's interesting to note that the tribe of Judah did not immediately assume a position of leadership in Israel. Jacob makes this prophecy, but it's going to be centuries before this prophecy is fulfilled. The spirit of kingship is in Judah's tribe, but it's not a spirit that hungers for glory. It's not a spirit that drives Judah to put himself forward. So when the exodus occurs, there's no man from Judah who stands up and demands to have a scepter placed in his hand to fulfill Jacob's prophecy. When Moses dies and Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim takes over, Judah does not object to this. Judah does not put himself forward. Judah does not take the scepter into his own hand. And yet Judah is always there. Always there to do the work of the Lord and to do that work with determination and intensity. So when Joshua dies and there is more war that must be waged in the land of Canaan, it's Judah who steps up and it's Judah who goes first to war against the inhabitants of Canaan according to Judges 1, verse 2. And when one of the tribes of Israel rebels and civil war breaks out in the covenant nation, it's Judah who goes up first in order to bring the errant Benjamin back into line, according to Judges 20. And when the Moabitess Ruth is seeking redemption among God's people, it's a man from Judah who is there to claim her and to serve the role of a redeemer to the house of Elimelech. And when Israel is down in the gutter after a long spiral downwards because of this period of the judges and the period of the reign of Saul, deep in Judah's tribe, there is found 
a young man after God's own heart into whose hand the scepter will be placed. And from then on, it's always a man of Judah who will sit upon the throne of God's kingdom. David, the man after God's own heart, and Solomon, the king of righteousness, and all of their sons. And even when history continues and eventually the sons of David become wicked and they are not like their father, and evil prevails in the palaces of Judah, so that God has to chasten the kingdom and has to take the people away, including their king, into captivity in Babylon. And the boy king Jehoiachin is taken in chains, yet God does not forget the prophecy that he made through Jacob so many centuries earlier. And Jehoiachin, a descendant long away from Judah, is lifted out of prison by the king of Babylon and is given... His son is given a place of leadership over God's people so that Zerubbabel, you recognize the name Zerubbabel, another descendant of Judah, was there, poised and ready to lead God's people back from Babylon, back from captivity, back to the land of Judah, to rebuild the house of God, and to make the people follow the laws again. And then that line of Zerubbabel continues on for a few more centuries until eventually A man named Joseph is born, who was the heir of Judah's prophecy, spoke the heir of Jacob's prophecy, spoken so many years before. And though there was no scepter in the hand of Joseph, yet it's clear that he also possessed the spirit of the king. So that we read in Matthew 1, verse 19, that he was a just man. And he was a man who clearly had the heart of a servant a servant of God. And that man Joseph, descendant of David, descendant of Judah, passed on his inheritance to his firstborn son, a son who is not his biological child, but his adopted heir, the son of Mary, the son of God, Jesus Christ. And that is what Jacob means when he says in verse 10, until Shiloh come. There's different possibilities about what that word Shiloh might mean. But it probably means the giver of rest. The giver of rest and peace. That is, Shiloh is the one who will truly grasp the power of the scepter of God's kingdom and will wield it. And will wield it to accomplish the purpose of kingship, which is to give rest and to give peace unto the people of God over whom he rules. And Shiloh will accomplish this with the spirit and the mind that was always in Judah's tribe, going all the way back to Judah himself, because this spirit and this mind of the king was always the spirit and mind of this individual, this Shiloh. The spirit and mind of the servant of God. The spirit and mind of Christ. A willingness to take responsibility and to execute that responsibility by laying one's life down in love. Love for God. Love for God's people. Love for the kingdom of truth and righteousness and mercy. And and in the hand of such a person, in the hand of Shiloh, the scepter will bring peace. And to him will the people be gathered. That's how Jacob's prophecy 
will be fulfilled. But of course, in a world of sin, in a world of enemies, there's only one way to bring peace. And that is through the battle. And so, though Judah and his tribe and the descendant of Judah will be a man who brings peace, who wields the scepter in righteousness, he will also be a man who wages war. And Jacob speaks of that as well. In verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Like any warrior, this role of the warrior will be a role that Judah will grow into over time. And that's why Jacob says Judah is a lion's whelp. Judah, that is, the man Judah, the son of Jacob, was not personally a man of war. He was not personally a man who held the sword, as far as we know. But Jacob is saying there's potential. There's potential in Judah. A whelp is a cub. Now, if you ever encounter a cub, a lion cub in the wild, you're not going to be scared of it. You could scratch it behind the ears and you could play with it and you'd be perfectly safe. But as we all know, there's potential in a lion's whelp. And the potential is for the whelp to develop into a lion. A lion who has strength and power and ferocity, who can take down an antelope and who can kill a man. Judah is a lion's whelp who quickly develops into a lion. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The thing that stands out about a lion is not only that it's a killing machine, although that's true. A lion has teeth that can break through bones. It has claws that can rip open flesh, and it has incredible strength. But what is striking about a lion there's other animals that have brute strength and powerful jaws and claws and everything. But what stands out about a lion is its utter dominance. A lion stands unchallenged, always. Other animals are skittish. A deer takes off as soon as it hears a footfall. The critters hide underground and under rocks. But a lion walks around with its head up. A lion lies down on the rock and it doesn't move for anyone or anything. It's dominant. It's unchallenged. And it's majestic. And if a lion is couched down beside its prey that it has recently killed with its mane matted with blood and its jaws glistening, there's not a creature in the world that will dare go anywhere near that beast. And that, Jacob says, is Judah. Couched as a lion, as an old lion, or possibly a lioness, who shall rouse him up? Who shall challenge him? Who will dare go anywhere near that beast and take the prey from out of its jaws? Now, of course, this was prophetic of the role that the tribe of Judah 
would pray in Israel's future battles. When you read of this lion's whelp, it's hard not immediately to think about David. Who was David? A young man, not even old enough to go fight in the army with his brothers, but sent by his father Jesse to bring a gift of cheese and wine to help his older brothers carry on in their fight. David was a keeper of the sheep, the youngest boy in his father's household. And yet he's the one who goes down into the valley with a sling in his hand and a stick to face the giant, the great warrior of the Philistines. And by faith in God, he sends one stone to crack the giant's skull and takes that giant's sword and cuts his head off with his own weapon. You could say of David, the descendant of Judah, that he was a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? And that was only the beginning of David's long career of fighting the battles of God's kingdom. David was a man of war. He brought the Philistines to their knees. He triumphed over the nations. Moab, Ammon, and Syria were all brought under his power. David really, finally, at last, completed the conquest of Canaan that was begun with Joshua, but was always in flux for hundreds of years during the days of the judges. And the nation of Israel under under David's scepter was expanded until it filled the whole land of Canaan and even beyond. And the way was paved for Solomon, whose name also means man of peace. The way was paved for Solomon to take the scepter and to build up the kingdom and to give it peace and glory and wealth. All the same, it's noteworthy that Judah personally never held the sword in his own hand. And though Jacob is clearly speaking prophetically about the kingdom and the tribe that will come out of Judah, there's a sense in which everything that Jacob is prophesying can also be found in Judah himself, in his character, in his spirit. Judah's hand, in some sense, was in the neck of his enemies. Judah personally, is a lion's whelp. Judah stands unchallenged on the field of battle here in the later days of his life, and no one will dare approach him to rouse him up. And how can that be if Judah was not a man of war like David? Well, you have to understand what the true nature of the enemy of God's kingdom is. The enemy of God's kingdom is not, first of all, Goliath or a giant with a spear and a sword. The enemy of God's kingdom is not, first of all, the armies of the heathen nations. It's a different enemy altogether, a different kind of enemy. The enemy of God's kingdom is the enemy who tried to conquer Judah when he was a young man in his father's house. The enemy of God's kingdom is the enemy that sent Judah spiraling down into unbelief for a time walking among the Canaanites, living as a son of this world, until finally the battlefield that he was on was made clear to him as his daughter-in-law Tamar stood before him, holding his staff, or we might say his scepter, in her hands. And yet in that moment, Judah was given a spiritual weapon that he used to gain the victory in the battle. 
And that spiritual weapon that Judah held was not a sword and not a physical rod of iron, but it was a repentant spirit. And it was a believing heart. And it was hope. Hope in the promise of redemption. Hope in the God of the covenant. Hope in the promise that Judah could see reflected clearly in the face of his young son, Perez, who was born from Tamar, from whom Christ was to be born. And now Jacob looks on Judah, the son of his, in these later years of his life, having gone through these battles, having gone through these experiences, and he sees in Judah a kingly lion crouching down by his prey, and no one dares, no devil No unbeliever dares to approach him or to challenge him or to seek to bring him down back under the power of sin in which he had been living. Proverbs 16, verse 32 says this, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. You see, the primary battle of God's people is not the battle against giants and armies. It's the battle that goes on in the heart. It's the battle that is waged in the spirit. It's the battle against sin and unbelief. It's the battle against lust and envy. It's the battle against hatred and idolatry. It's the battle that God's people must wage against that other lion, that roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour the devil. It's the battle that God's people wage against principalities and powers of this world that are seeking to deceive and to overwhelm the souls of God's people. And Judah, at the end of the story, is the Judah who has been given the victory in that battle. And the victory that he was given was a final victory, a victory that is definitive, a victory that is absolute and irrevocable, just like a lion who is couching down by his prey that no one dares to rouse up. Because the victory that Judah was given was the victory that he had by faith in Jesus Christ, by which faith he was righteous and had a righteousness to which he clung to even as he repented from and turned from his unbelief and sin. So that now as old Jacob looks in the face of his fourth son, he sees a veteran, he sees a warrior, He sees a king. And of course, what all of that tells us is that behind the battle that Judah fought and behind the battle that David fought and behind the battle that all of God's people fight as kings is the battle that was first of all fought by Jesus Christ, whom Revelation 5 identifies as the lion of Judah's tribe. Judah is a lion's whelp, Jacob says. Who was that whelp? Who was that lion's whelp? That spirit of lion-like power and majesty that always existed in Judah and in his tribe? Who was that warrior whose hand was in the neck of his enemies? That's Jesus Christ, beloved. As God's Son, Do you look at him that way? I hesitate to go into this too much because my series isn't done yet. There's one more sermon I want to preach. And it's from Revelation 5, which identifies the Lord as the lion from Judah's tribe. 
But do you look at him that way? As the king, as the lion, as the one who has the spirit of the warrior. Do you see him that way? In all the stories you know from the New Testament. Isn't that what was going on? As Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus. Was it not with the rage of a lion? That he roared and cried out, Lazarus, come forth. With the roar of a lion, he defied death and hell and the power of sin. Is that not the spirit that was upon Jesus Christ as he stood there calmly in the garden of Gethsemane? As this troop comes marching against him with torches and clubs and weapons to arrest him. And yet, with one word from his mouth, I am, I am he. They all fall down backwards. He's the lion. He's the king. It was with the spirit of the lion upon him that he allowed his hands and his feet to be pierced on the cross. It was with the spirit of the lion upon him that he allowed the darkness to gather around him. It's not so much that death came after him, but it's that he went after it and overcame it, put his hand in its neck, the neck of this last enemy, brought it under submission to him, to his will, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who holds the scepter in his hand. The scepter is in my hand, devil. The scepter is in my hand, world. Principalities, powers, my hand. And no others. That's the Lord. He's the king. He's a warrior. And through his war, he brings peace and prosperity to his people. Jacob prophesied of this too in verses 11 and 12. Binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Jacob is speaking in poetry and therefore some of the things he says here are a bit elusive. And yet the idea of abundance and wealth and prosperity is very evident. There will be such prosperity that Judah will tie his donkey to the choicest of vines. That's something that you would never do if grapes and wine was in short supply. You would never tie your donkey to the choicest vine because you know what your donkey is going to do. He's going to eat everything in sight. And so the idea is there is so much abundance, so much abundance on the vine, so much abundance of wine, which is the symbol of a kingdom that can produce even the best that life has to offer. So much abundance that you can even let your donkey, your beast of burden, eat to his heart's content. And Judah will wash his clothes in wine and in the blood or the juice of the grapes rather than in water because 
again, there will be such abundance. Verse 12 is a little more difficult. His eyes will be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. But these are probably descriptions intended to, de- to convey the beauty and the glory of the king. Instead of red eyes, you might read dark eyes. Eyes that are dark like wine. And teeth that are healthy and white like milk. Sounds like something you'd read out of the Song of Solomon. That he rides on a donkey would not have been understood as a symbol of humility at this time. Donkeys were more commonly used than horses, and at least I'm reliably told that it was pretty common for kings and chiefs and royalty to use donkeys as well as horses. The idea of a glorious war horse is a later development. However, we understand that the Holy Spirit is the author of these words and not ultimately Jacob. And the Holy Spirit did know that one day the descendant of Judah, Jesus Christ, would ride on a donkey and that in his day this would be a symbol of humility and meekness as it would stand in contrast to the triumphant marches of the Roman generals and the glorious warlords who always rose, rode around on horses and in chariots. And so I believe that the Holy Spirit is giving us here a clue, a clue as to the true nature of the prosperity of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is not a prosperity of wine or of milk or of vineyards as such, but is the prosperity of the kingdom of heaven. It is the prosperity of a soul that is filled with the knowledge of the mercy of God in Christ and is therefore humbled before God and trembles at His word. It is the prosperity of a character that is transformed after the image of Christ and exudes therefore the characteristics of meekness and kindness. It is the prosperity of the gift of hope and of a true faith so that one lives by the power of the heavenly kingdom and seeks those things which are above rather than those things which are above, that, that are below and belong to this world that is going to burn with a fervent heat. And that's true prosperity. Wine and milk spoil and earthly riches fade away. But the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom that is worthy that you would sell everything that you have if only you could have this pearl of great price. If only you could have this treasure that is buried in a field somewhere. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom, the scepter of which Jacob is prophesying here, which scepter was entrusted to Judah and therefore to Judah's son. Jesus Christ. And this is a prophecy that is not yet fulfilled. Verses 11 and 12. It's not fulfilled yet, at least not fully. Now it is fulfilled in a sense by faith, even at this very moment. We know we're sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have an inseparable union to the kingdom that knows no end. A kingdom that is not of flesh and blood. And that's a powerful thing. To know that we are citizens of that kingdom. We can be surrounded by darkness and unbelief and and ugliness. And still we are wealthy and rich beyond compare. We're heirs of the kingdom of God. And yet, ultimately the kingdom that Jacob is speaking of here is a kingdom that is coming. 
a kingdom that has not yet fully arrived. Shiloh. Shiloh has come, and yet he's coming, isn't he? He's coming again, coming to give peace to his people, coming to wield the scepter of righteousness and to establish a kingdom that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, a kingdom that cannot be destroyed or overcome, a kingdom that will go on and on and on and will be filled forever with the knowledge of God. Beloved, do you believe that? Do you hope for it? Do you live every day in the expectation of that kingdom and the coming of Shiloh who holds the scepter in his hand? Don't be afraid, beloved, of the world in which we live. Don't be afraid of the great and powerful men who hold the scepter or seem to hold the scepter in their hand, who seem to have all the power and all the authority and who often use that power and authority in corruption to bring a kingdom of sin. Don't be afraid of them. Though they are God's servants, and though we must submit unto them, the scepter isn't in their hands, not the scepter of God's kingdom. It's been entrusted to Judah, and it's been entrusted to Judah's son. And he's coming. He's coming. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for this prophecy, for these words that speak out of ancient history, out of the mouth of an old man, long dead, long gathered unto his people. And yet it was not only Jacob who spoke, but it was the Spirit of Jesus Christ speaking through him, announcing the coming of Shiloh and of the one who would hold the scepter in his hand and who would establish a kingdom of righteousness and truth and peace. We pray, O Father, give us the ears to hear that word, to believe it and to embrace it, with a heart full of faith, and to live every day, therefore, in the expectation that though this world in which we live passes away, the kingdom that Shiloh will establish is yet coming and will be much greater than anything that we see here. Strengthen us, O Father, and give us, too, following after our Lord, the Spirit of the King, to fight against unbelief and sin in our own lives and to wield the scepter of dominion in our own lives, to rule over our own spirit through the grace that is given to us in Christ. Forgive our sins. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake.